Radio Curious presents a memorial to Michael Toms, the executive producer of New Dimensions Radio, in an interview recorded in his home in Ukiah, California, on January 9, 1995. Michael Toms passed away on January 24, 2013, at the age of 72. Michael and Justine Toms have produced a fascinating and long-enduring and endearing program on public radio with over 5,000 programs in their archives. In our conversation, Michael Toms shares his perspective on how radio works, the producer and the listener, and the future of radio. We began when I asked Michael Toms about his thoughts of the relationship between the producer of the radio program and the listener. From my own experience, I feel a very close connection to the listener, and that comes from having done live radio for many years and having experienced that dynamic that goes on between, and the magic that goes on between uh, the studio, who's in the studio and who's out there listening. And then it continues on in the work that I do now, even though it's not live uh, as it's being done, it's still, um, I still feel that connection and it's, it's very mysterious. And, you know, we get lots of feedback from listeners. And so um, we've, because we've been doing this so long, there are people that started with us 20 years ago that we still know. I mean, we have like, I think 45,000 names in our mailing list and there are names on there that I recognize, that I know. You know, there are people mm-hmm. that have been around listening to New Dimensions for years. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, re- it's a real personal connection. And, and at the same time, it's like, it's like it's not, we're kind of in, the, in this together. You know, we're exploring ideas and, and looking for um, new ways to live in the world um, in, a, in a more humane and balanced way. And I think everyone's interested in that. And so as we're exploring that on the radio and, and interviewing people, talking to people about these ideas, um, the listeners out there, they're interested as well. They're part of the conversation. They're part of the dialogue. And it's like we're in the living room and we're all listening to what's happening. And just, just talking to them personally. Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is where the um, changes in, in the electronic media will go. Uh, just 10 years ago, we didn't have the vast proliferation of fax machines. And I'm interested in your thoughts of in 10 years, what can we expect from our radio? Is it really going to be the Dick Tracy kind of wrist radio communication that uh, seems to be coming about with uh, portable telephones? Well, I, I don't think anyone can predict the future, but I know that the technology is changing so rapidly. I mean, it's almost like every day there's something new coming along. And it's hard to say what's going to happen 10 years from now, but I can say that clearly uh, there'll be a lot more access to communication electronically than there is now, even though there's a lot now. And I think that you'll be much more able to receive what you want to receive, listen to what you want to listen to, you'll be able to plug into services where you don't have to deal with programming that you're not interested in. I mean, for an example, uh, if you're hooked up to the cable on television or you're even hooked up to the cable for radio, um, you're limited to the number of channels you can get. And uh, I'm suggesting that what's going to happen is you're going to have access to hundreds of channels of 
uh, audio, right, namely radio, but audio, sound, um, and you'll be able to choose, pick and choose which ones you want, and you'll be able to pick and choose based on your interests and and what you what kind of music you want, the kind of information you're looking for. Um, that's going to happen. It's going to be available that way. How do you think that's going to affect society? And I'm, I ask from the point of view that, uh, again, when I was a kid, and about the time you were, uh, there were about seven channels on television and maybe as many channels on radio. And we would watch a program, and we'd talk about it on the playing field the next morning uh, at recess. So there became a commonality of what people would listen to and have available. But if there's hundreds of channels, what do you think that'll do to our society? There was community. Uh, you're talking about community, that there was, in, in those times, there was more community than it even happened around the radio or around the television. Families would sit around the radio for the family community. Yeah, and I think when television came along, though, that started to shift radically because the 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 TV dinner and the family watching a screen, the television screen all together, it kind of took, it wasn't the same as listening to the radio. Because when you're listening to the radio, it's like you can do other things, you can chat, you can carry on other, you know, I mean, you just sort of, you can interact. With television, you can't, it's hard to do that, you know, and, and pay attention to that screen. So when the screen came along, when video came along, that started to shift and it's just gotten, you know, more and more uh, the family has uh, broken down and the com and community has broken down because of it. What do you think that's the difference is? Uh, when we watch television, we're given an image. It's a singular channel. When we listen to radio, we make up the pictures in our mind as we listen. Well, I've done a lot of reading in this area, and there's limited research that's been done in, in how we how we perceive through the ear and through and through the eye and it's clear to uh, science now that that um, we perceive differently uh, with our ears than we do with our eyes and in some ways we perceive more through the ear than we do through the eyes talk about those differences clearly i think that there's parts of the brain that are interactive with radio that may not be interactive with television when i say radio i'm talking about the aural um, sound the, the ear I think there's when we're listening without looking at a video screen, it's a different kind of dynamic of receiving information than when we're looking at a screen and also receiving information. I think anyone who watches television can think, can feel how you kind of zone out with television. I mean, it's kind of like you go into another zone and you're, you become part of the program in some sense, but there's something in the mind that shuts down in some way. I know for myself, if, I might watch something on Nova or, you know, a really good program, and a few days later on television, and I don't remember what I what I heard or what, what the information was. Whereas with radio, with audio, with sound, um, it's like you're you're involved at a at a higher level, at a deeper level, and somehow the information comes in um, and remains. It's stronger. So it's a mystery. Again, I think there's been little, not a whole lot of research done in this area, and certainly. We don't really understand how those television signals are impacting our brain. And I think there's a lot more work uh, that can be done in that area because, you know, television is a major, has a major impact in our culture. And clearly, um, there, there's not a lot we know about how it's really impacting our brain. I mean, there's been some, some research on children with television and how um, when children are exposed to television at an early age, 
there's actually parts of their um, the neural transmit some of the neural trans some of the neural parts of the neurons in their brain are actually stilt stultified. Um, that there's a process of growth that is interfered with by television. Um, and for instance, uh, they've discovered that uh, this was first started to realize when they were testing college students around um, creating stories, and and they found that many of these students couldn't actually create stories. They found they couldn't visualize, they couldn't imagine the story to be able to write it, and and they trace that back to uh, you know television, watching too much, watching mm -hmm. television where the images are provided, and somehow. One doesn't have to create those images in your own mind, whereas with radio and sound, you create the images in your in your own mind, your own brain, and those are the clearest ones that we ever we ever see, the ones that we create ourselves, not the ones that come in from outside. Joseph Chilton Pierce addresses yes, this. Yes, Evolution's and, and End and, and in Magical Child and, and a number of his books he touches in this area for sure. Right. It's definitely part of his um, full, uh, approach to uh, education and learning. Well, let me ask you, um, what drew you to radio? Well, I grew up with radio, um, uh, so I was a child of radio, and I remember much more about radio programs I listened to than television programs I watched uh, as a child. I mean, I didn't television didn't come in until like the, the the early fifties, and I was uh, let's see, I was a teenager in the mid fifties, and so radio was I was prim radio was primary in my early life, and I can remember sitting by the Philco stand-up radio with my grandfather on Saturday nights uh, in Washington, D.C., and that was what you did Saturday nights. You listened to the Philco stand-up, uh, listened to police calls in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., and in those days it wasn't nearly as, as bad as it is now, <laughs> but you know, you, the level of, of uh, police calls was a little less threatening than it is now, but uh, that was one of the things you did. Also, there were several, there was some shortwave bands on that, old Philco stand-up, and she listened to shortwave, too, and uh, I remember doing that. I remember getting up Saturday morning and listening to the, tuning into the radio to listen to the shows that came on on Saturday morning, shows like Archie and Sky King and others, you know, and mm -hmm. so radio was part of my early life, and then I can remember, you know, one of the shows that impacted me as a, as a youngster was Edward R. Murrow's See It Now, and I can look back on that. That was on television. It was also on radio. But where, you know, that show was done live, it was spontaneous, it was a very personal and intimate interview, dialogue program, and I can look back and say, you know, <laughs> there was some impact on me with that, I was impressed with that, and I remember Murrow was someone who very much impressed me. And the title brought the image to, m to mind, it forced it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Michael, let's uh, go back to that question about what hundreds of channels will do to society? Well, I'm of the opinion that uh, I'm for the democratization of media. And I, I've seen, I saw what happened in print. You know, in 1960, you had the advent of offset printing uh, and um, Xerox machine came on then. And within a few years, uh, you had photo typesetting, uh, the whole graphics industry changed. And so instead of four gas stations on the corner, you had four instant printers. And so anybody could become a publisher, literally. And no longer was the technology just in the hands of large companies. 
uh, but it was in the hands of many. And so now we have the proliferation of stif many different magazines and publications and newsletters. And that didn't used to be the case. 25 years ago, 30 years ago, that was mm -hmm. not the case. You had a few magazines and major magazines at that and you know, magazines like, you know, the, 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 the old Colliers and Saturday Evening Post, those magazines, they went by the boards because suddenly you had all these new magazines coming up that could economically reach smaller audiences and smaller groups of people. What's interesting about that in terms of newspapers is that the small hometown newspaper uh, doesn't really much, exist much more. Uh, they're all owned by larger chains, and, and the information is funneled to them. Well... That's true. Many of them are, but I still see in small newspapers, I mean, even in our own town here in Ukiah, Ukiah Daily Journal, even though it's owned by a company that's not in Ukiah, you still see things in the Ukiah Daily Journal that you will not see in a major urban newspaper. And there's a lot of local coverage. There's a lot of community coverage. These things do not exist in major urban papers. So even though that's true, what you're saying, that many of these smaller papers have been taken over by larger companies, there's still a lot of access to these right. people. I mean, right. in Ukiah, you can go and just submit a, a, an article, and you know you, they'll publish it. I mean, it's like that, that kind of relationship with the community exists, I think, in, in towns all over America with small newspapers. And so that's still, you know, a real, I think, a real... Um, source of, of a democracy in the United States. Mm. This edition of Radio Curious is a tribute and memorial to Michael Toms, the executive producer of New Dimensions Radio. It's an interview that was recorded with him at his home in Ukiah, California in January of 1995. I'm Barry Vogel. So what will these hundreds of channels do? Well, I'm, I'm suggesting that, that the same possibility uh, can happen with electronic media. And when the advent of cable, there was <clears throat> this was going to make more different kinds of programming available, and of course it didn't happen. But I'm suggesting that what's going to happen with the proliferation, more and more audio channels, is you're going to have the same availability of information that now exists in print. So because it will be feasible to reach a smaller audience of people economically and efficiently, because you'll be able to address them directly via satellite or via cable or whatever. And um, people will be able to get information on audio and video too, but, but we're talking about audio here, um, that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get. And they'll be able to get it very inexpensively. And they'll be able to get it without commercials. And so this clearly is going to impact the radio industry <clears throat> in a major way. And I think, you know, in, in large respects, the, the radio industry of it, commercial, <clears throat> excuse me, the commercial industry represented by the National Association of Broadcasters is fighting all of these technologies tooth and nail because they don't want to see them happen. Because uh, they'll lose because the Because they'll affect radio The stations. advertising dollar. Yeah, they'll affect radio stations. Uh, no one really knows how much, but clearly as more, as more st you know, we, we see it with the same thing happening with the networks and television networks where their viewership is going down and as more and more opportunities come up for people to tune into something different and to not, not tune in at all, which I think a lot of people do, um, then you know, the net major networks are, are losing people. So they're trying to diversify into other areas. They're buying up cable stations. They're doing other things because they can see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, so the same thing is going to happen in audio and radio. And um, 
I think that, that, that it will provide a lot more opportunities for access for people to gain access because um, it's just like us. I mean, we, can, we, can, we distribute our own program. We, we, we do it all ourselves. We're able to access the satellite. We're able to do all of that. And um, 15 years ago, that wasn't possible. And probably in 15 years, you'll be able to access the satellite from uh, here in Ukiah instead of going to the Bay Area. Sooner than that. Sooner than that, I would say. What that, do you foresee? Well, I'm really, I really want a portable satellite uplink. I mean, they're available now for around fifteen thousand dollars. You can carry them all over. You can carry them anywhere you go in the world, and uh, so that's what I would like to have to be able to go anywhere in the world and just set up my portable uplink, and I can, I can broadcast from anywhere I want to broadcast from. I just go to the satellite and boom, lay the signal down, and there it is. And broadcast your programs live. Sure, exactly. Yeah. Well, when we were in Ireland this past year, uh, we did five days of, of live shortwave broadcasting directly from Ireland all over the world. And how we did it was we uh, plugged into local telephone lines, which basically we called long-distance telephone, which is satellite-delivered telephone signal, to Costa Rica, where our shortwave station is located, and then they transmit the signal. And so, but with a sh with an uplink, we could go directly. We could eliminate the phone lines, which cost long distance charges, um, and do it directly. Uh, so, these things are all possible. And you know, I envision that someday the conference center here will have its own uplink and be able to deliver you know video and audio directly anywhere in the world. Um, so, yeah, I see that's coming. It's going to be here sooner than fifteen years. When this audio and video is delivered. Um, I know you have some numbers of the percentage of the population that is reached by radio on a mm -hmm. daily and weekly basis. Right. Those are pretty interesting numbers. Could you share them with us? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, we'll talk about the larger reality. that Radio reaches 85% of the planet. In other words, people, 85% uh, of people ha around the planet have access to radio. Only 25% have access to television. So radio is a very democratic medium. It reaches most of the people on the planet. Um, now, coming, taking it, bringing it back to the United States, our own country, um, three out of four adults are reached by car radio weekly. 80% of Americans, 12 and over, listen to radio five hours on the weekends. Um, each day, radio reaches 77% of all Americans. Each week, radio reaches 96% of all Americans. This is more than television and newspapers. And weekdays, 95% of all Americans listen at least three hours. Um, that's on weekdays. And they listen five hours on weekends. And so those figures are pretty impressive when you start to think, you know, we're talking about a lot of people. And who can be reached and the visual images that each person can create. Yeah, and see, again, it's like, of course, when we use these figures, we're talking about largely this is uh, commercial radio. And I'm really interested in non-commercial radio and radio that, that uh, because in many ways, commercial radio has frozen out a lot of uh, really creative uh, programming. So that in Mendocino County, we have KZYX, which is a public radio station. We do a lot of things on KZYX, a lot of things on KZYX that you'll never find on K-Wine or some of the other commercial stations because they're doing a music format. And everybody just sort of accepts that. That's the way it is. But that's not the way it used to be. You know? and, and so I'm suggesting that with these other, ch with more and more channels available, that there's going to be more and more 
opportunity to put information out that is not available now in commercial, commercial broadcasting. And I think that's important. Why do you feel uh, the change came, since this is not the way it used to be, and uh, it's now mainly music on commercial radio? Well, what, what, what brought that about? Television. Television uh, took over all the uh, discrete, uh, tunable programs that were on radio. They became television programs. And then radio was floundering around in the 50s and early 60s. Well, what do we do? What do we do? And they came up with format radio, music format radio. And so <clears throat> what happened, what, what emerged was, oh, well, people will tune in to classical music. People will tune in to country and western. People will tune in to top 40. People will turn into, you know, whatever. And so you had all the development, all these uh, music format stations, and so that's what happened. And, that, and, and it's, it's from the sense of advertising and advertisers, I mean, it's worked, you know. I mean, it's done what they want to done, what, what, what done, but it, it also... It basically sells the advertiser's product. Yeah, it sells advertiser's products. And, but it also, uh, by its very nature, it freezes out a lot of programming that can't get the numbers that advertisers demand. Uh, and I don't believe that programming should be decided on based on numbers, uh, how many people are re being reached, because there are people that, you know, if, if uh, I mean, someone might be interested in bottle collecting. Well, wouldn't it be interesting to have a bottle collecting program? If you have, you know, if you've got 500 bottle collectors in Mendocino County, you know, it's probably worth, you know, be, they probably would tune mm -hmm. in. But you can't do it now with the limited program time that's available, but with more and more channels, more and more information, those kind of programs will be available. I mean, if you go to Britain, for example, go, to, go overseas, go to Britain, for example, and you've got four levels of BBC. BBC Four is, I mean, you can listen, tune in to programs when they're talking about backyard gardening, um, you know, tulips in, in April, and, and it's like real, real, very, very esoteric, <laughs> very narrow audience material. But, but the information is available. The information is available, and it's available because they're so, they've got so much programming, time, and airtime that they can do it. And the print media is the way to get uh, the schedules out in one form. Right, and also they're not driven by commercial interests that want more and more numbers. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big factor. You know, when you're driven by numbers, um, you gotta, you, the programming becomes limited, it's automatic. Michael, you mentioned earlier uh, this evening when we were talking that nothing happens by accident. I'd like to, to put that into perspective. When we were talking off the record, I asked you if um, that meant to you that everything is predestined or preordained. Well, I don't think it's preordained. Um, <clears throat> I kind of am a subscriber to Carl Jung's idea of synchronicity. And... Jung noted that there were lots of events that occurred that were unexplainable in, in rational terms, and yet they happened nonetheless. And so there's a mystery here where things happen and you don't really know why. I mean, you'll meet someone that you didn't expect to meet, uh, kismet kinds of things, um, deja vu kinds of things. These, all these things happen. They happen to everyone um, at, at you know, different times in, in, in life. And so clearly there's something else going on there's something else happening and so when when um when i say there are no accidents i really believe there are no accidents and that somehow at some level what is happening is is there to happen because somehow in my life however it's interacted that event has come about 
to interact with my life wherever it is. And so I see it as um, even though, you know, it's like gives you an opportunity to see there's goods and bads to this. I mean, there's pluses and minuses to this kind of thing because, it, you know, not everything is love and light in, in life and you have ups and downs. And so you have to deal with the ups and the downs uh, as well. So, Well, when you talk about uh, synchronicity, yeah, uh, do you extend that to the concept that uh, in human culture, similar things are invented or realized at the same time in different parts of the world by different groups of people? Well, it's been my experience that there's not never an original idea, that if I've got a, if I've got a, a really what I think is a hot idea, I'll discover very quickly that six or seven people that I didn't know about before I had the idea suddenly have this idea. I've, I've experienced that over and over again. So, uh, and I came out of, I used to be uh, in, uh, do creative work in, in, in advertising, and, and so I experienced it many times there. And so, yeah, I think, you know, again, going back to what the quantum physicists are saying, it's all connected. It's all connected. And I don't totally understand quantum physics, you understand. I'm not a physicist. But I do feel, and in my own life experience, that it is interconnected. And, and I live my life uh, in that way. As we come to the close of our talk, um, I'd like to devote a couple of minutes on my last question which is to ask you to share with us uh, some interesting books that you've read lately. And, and sitting here in your living room, uh, all the walls are covered with books. And, and I yeah. know that that's your occupation. Right. Our house has sunk, I think, several inches since we lived in it with the books. Uh, well, the nature of my work is it involves my reading lots of books. And so I'm reading all the time. I usually have 40 to 50 books by my bedside. I do a lot of my reading at night. Uh, and uh, in the early morning. And so I always have lots of books by my bedside, and I'm usually reading eight or nine or ten books at the same time. You know, if I'm interviewing somebody, for an example, I will always read their books if they have books. Sure. And um, I, do it, I do as much as I can to prepare for when I'm doing interviews. As far as uh, books that, I've, that, I, that recently have impacted me that I would like to mention, one is the, a book, Featherfall, by Lawrence Vanderpost. It's a collection of all of Lawrence Vanderpost's, uh, the essence of Lawrence Vanderpost's writings. He's written 23 books, and he is a, one of, I think, the, one of the giants of the 20th century, and much unrecognized in, in the United States, but recognized more outside of the United States than he is here. But he's, he was talking about deep ecology 60 years ago when it wasn't even a term called deep ecology. And he is a, truly a, a visionary uh, thinker, and his book, Featherfall, is really excellent. I recommend it to, any, to everyone. And also the Millennium Whole Earth Catalog is a book that I've spent some time with and still spend time with. It's the kind of book that you can go into and just sort of open it up and have your mind blown, you know, before you get through half a page. So I suggest the Millennium Whole Earth Catalog. <laughs> and the third book I want to mention is a book called Healing Words, uh, subtitled The Power of Prayer and the Practice of Medicine by Larry Dossey. Michael Toms, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Barry. This interview with Michael Toms was recorded in his home in Ukiah, California on January 9th, 1995. Michael Toms was the executive producer of New Dimensions Radio and passed away on January 24th 2013. 
newdimensions.org is the website. The books that Michael Toms recommended in 1995 are Featherfall by Lawrence Vanderpost, The Millennium Whole Earth Catalog by Howard Rheingold, and Healing Words, The Power of Prayer and the Practice of Medicine by Larry Dossie. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.